Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Welcome everyone back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast uh, My name is Keith Giles and I'm very excited to continue this uh, decolonizing series that we're doing uh, Hope you're enjoying it I am. It's been really eye-opening, really educational, and a lot of fun. And um, But real quick, let's do some introductions before we jump into this uh, episode of the podcast where we continue the series. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the Jesus Un series of books on deconstruction and re- reconstruction. And there's seven in the series available over on Amazon. Also the founder of Square One, a course and community for people going through deconstruction who want help going through it and you don't have to go through it alone. There's over 100 people in the group and uh, they know what you've been through and they're there to help you and support you and you can kind of go through it together. You can find the information about that at bk2sq1.com. Oh, and I blog on Pathios and I do like 10 other podcasts, you know. Google it, you'll see it. Anyway, I'm also joined by my amazing co-hosts who also do many, many things, uh, including this podcast. And uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So Derek, Matt, and Katie, say hi. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, Self-Control. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. Would love to have you over there if you're into the woo-woo. You know, something I don't um, I don't mention a whole lot because uh, it's, it's not a book, but I wrote an article on trans women voices in the Hebrew Bible that was published about a two years ago at the time when we were recording this. Um, it's something I was really, really proud of. And uh, it was really fun to do. I got to interview, uh, a, I got to interview a bunch of people. It's in, uh, and it was available for free the last, as of the time when we were recording this to read online. So I'll definitely post a link. Maybe we can put that in the show notes. And it's, um, I think it's important to the topic that we're talking about today. So I'll just put that out there as a little teaser. And I am Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion and the author of the Love Minus Religion blog on patheos.com. And I am really stoked about this decolonizing theology or decolonizing Christianity series that we're doing. And I'm just really excited about this. And I, I just, I, I can't say anything more than that. Well, that's said perfectly because uh, I feel the same way. I feel like this has been one of our best series. This series is series is series applies various things. It's been one of the most enlightening. So I, I hope everyone uh, listening agrees with us that it's been helpful in your deconstruction journey and your faith journey, whatever whatever journey you're on. That that this podcast and this series has been um, helpful to you. And uh, I'm Matt DiStefano. I, I'm an author. I write at Pathios. I have a, a podcast with Keith yes. in, in addition to this one. And I'm just, I'm ready to get into it. So Katie, can you can you help introduce our, our co-host for this week's uh, episode? I'm so excited. Our co-host is Joy Layden, Dr. Joy Layden. Joy is a trans woman. Joy is a a Jewish woman, I believe a Jewish Orthodox woman. Joy is a poet. And I have a really fun, really short story to help introduce you to how awesome Joy is. 
about two or three years ago, pre-COVID, last time we all met in our in our big academic conference, Joy was giving a paper at a session, and I was the chair. I wasn't the chair. I was presiding at the I was presiding at the session. And last minute, just things came up, and she couldn't be there. But she graciously emailed me her paper so I could read it out loud. And I stood up and said, "I'm not Joy Layden, but I am here to read Joy's paper." And all these people looked at me and went. <sighs> They were excited to hear Joy's work because Joy is amazing and really sad that Joy wasn't there, uh, as was I. But we're so happy that Joy is here. It's going to talk to us about what it is to decolonize everything, maybe even including our Christian assumptions, uh, plus a whole bunch more. So welcome, Joy. Let's get the show on the road. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, my name is Joy Layton, and I'm not a heretic. Hi, Joy. Joy, that was super provocative. Welcome to the show. We're really happy to have you on this episode. Tell us why you're not a heretic. Thank you, Katie. I'm delighted to be here. Um, There are a few different reasons that I'm not a heretic. One is that um, I'm an American Jew, and American Judaism has um, variegated so much uh, over the past mm, century and a half, maybe two centuries, that it's pretty hard to be a heretic. Um, It's easier to be a heretic in uh, closed religious communities with very binary, distinct, you know, criteria for who's a member and who's not a member. But what happens with um, a lot of American Jews, including uh, Orthodox American Jews, is that, as you know, people's um, relation to religion and tradition and uh, divinity keep changing over their lives. And what American Jews tend to do is they move around, they change synagogues, they change self-identification, sometimes they multiply identify. So in smaller town areas. It's not uncommon for people to belong to several different, completely different synagogues. Um, In Portland, Oregon, when I was there, there were five synagogues from um, Orthodox to so progressive that the rabbi would always get in trouble for comparing Israel to Nazi Germany. And I was told that Portland Jews regularly moved from one to the other sort of as though like hands on a clock, like you start with the Orthodox community because you liked the community and the tradition, and then it would feel too repressive. And so you'd, you'd keep moving to the left and you'd end up with the, the reconstructionist rabbi and you'd stay there until he said something about Israel and Nazis. And then you would quit and go back to the Orthodox. (laughs) So (laughs) under circumstances like that, it is pretty hard to be a heretic. Another reason is that even within traditional Judaism, as uh, you probably know, it's a, a polyvocal tradition. So uh, when Jews started codifying the oral rabbinical discussions that recorded the evolution of Judaism after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans, they kind of had to reinvent the religion because it had been centralized around sacrifices and a priesthood and all of that was gone. So there are centuries of rabbinical discussions and they're really discussions. So instead of just 
saying, well, these are the decisions. And if you're a good Jew, you're going to abide by all of these decisions. They recorded these complicated discussions, including minority opinions and rejected opinions. There is one very famous heretic in the Talmud who is only known as Acher, the other. However, Acher gets a lot of airplay. They tell provocative stories about him, they record his views, and so even, and he clearly um, tried, but didn't manage to get excommunicated from the Talmud. So when you have a religious tradition that sees a conversation as a mode of religious, of worship in a way, a way of making God manifest as people discussing and arguing and, and trying to figure things out together, and you want to preserve all of those voices, it, it does, it makes it hard to be a heretic. But the last reason I wanted to give is more personal. It's that my, my goal as a religious person is, and um, specifically as uh, a religious person who identifies both as Jewish and as transgender, is instead of reading my difference from most American Jews, and let's face it, I'm still different from most American Jews, no matter how many different flavors there are. Um, but instead of taking that difference and saying, oh yeah, this puts me outside or on the margins, you know, in the heretic position, I, uh, my work is to show, to put the difference at the center and to show how looking at religious tradition and religious texts from the perspective of a life like mine contributes to the vitality of the tradition. So instead of trying to overturn it or challenge it, I just want to say, hey, look, you know, I fit the definition of Jewish. So I'm here, I'm queer. It's my job to add my little bit to the vitality of, of this uh, ongoing project. Wow. So I just got to say, Joy, I love, I love that response. And um, as you were talking, I was thinking of all the things that Western Christianity stole from Judaism, I wish we would have stolen that idea of being polyvocal and having a religion that was centered around a conversation and uh, recognized that, um, as you said, like, you know, everybody's kind of in process with their own personal religious, spiritual, you know, uh, faith. It's so refreshing, and it's something that uh, I, I, it's very sad that a lot of Christians don't understand that or, or embrace that. So it's yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. It's very, I don't know, it's very freeing. It's really wonderful. I can't, I can't imagine being in a Christianity where it was impossible to be a heretic. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, Joy, I have a, a, a really, um, I don't know, challenging question. It's already difficult to be transgender in America. That's that's a challenge. And we're working on on you know fixing that and um and, and changing that, correcting that. But how difficult is that in the Jewish community? How is that how is that perceived by 
by fellow Jews. And, and, and again, Judaism is very nuanced. So you have Orthodox, you have uh, Hasidic. You, I mean, how is that, you know, how is, how is that perceived by those different uh, sects? Thank you. That is, um, that's a great question. And I guess one thing I would say is I'm not sure that the premise is right. I would say we're working to make it harder to be trans in America. Uh, pretty much every day I hear about more anti-trans legislation. And one of the things that I don't hear a lot about is communities engaging in open and honest discussions about how gender works in different communities, in different towns, in different institutions, and what it means to people, because gender is something we do together. It's one of the, the problems that I think trans rights have is that they're conceived of as rights, which is an individualizing discourse and a legalistic discourse. And and I think individual rights are important. I'm not against either of those. And I think using civil rights laws is important. But legislation and um, court cases don't promote widespread social change, as we've seen from the persistence and in some ways increase in uh, racism in America, despite lots of good legislation, um, the degree of segregation in this country is greater than it's ever been. And so what that shows is one kind of change didn't lead to another kind of change. And the kind of change that maybe even more intensely than in terms of race, but with, with trans and non-binary people, because gender is fundamental to most people's uh, way of understanding themselves and presenting themselves to others, it's fundamental to most of our most intimate interactions with one another and many of our non-intimate interactions. You know, as you know, women in law firms discover negotiating what feminine gender expression is appropriate, you know, gets you partner track, but doesn't make you seem to, you know, like a bitch and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So gender and uh, a binary system of gender, right? Masculinity, femininity, identifying where people are in that. It remains as foundational to most people's lives as ever. And so the, the push for transgender rights, because we're such a tiny minority, uh, is I think it often feels too dangerous to say, you know what, let's just talk about this. Like, what does it mean to have somebody like me, somebody who really does not fit into traditional gender systems, right? I identify as female. Other people look at me. I'm sure there are people listening to me now, and they're like, you know, I'm not reading that voice as female. You keep saying female, but your name is Joy, but that's not the way you sound to me. So. What does it mean to live in a world where there are many different systems of gender that serve different functions for different individuals and families and communities? And how do we figure out how to negotiate the friction points between those systems of gender? So we've done it to some extent in terms of a world that has many different religions. Christianity has done it in terms of a world that has many different forms of Christianity. And if you think about different religions, 
as we know, for a long time, it was fashionable to just kill everybody who didn't believe what you believed. And the reason for that is like, there's only one universe, right? There can only be one account of the universe that's true. So how can you live in a world, how can you bear to live in a world where you have different conceptions of God, of time, of redemption, these fundamental issues, we can't exist. It, you know, it's our brains will melt, our souls will melt if we have to live in that kind of world. Well, the killing thing didn't work. And so we had to figure out how to understand that the person next to us might actually in some ways live in a different belief universe. What has not been recognized very much is the same thing is true of gender. So when I was came out at an Orthodox Jewish school, where like many tradi uh, uh, traditional uh, Christian communities, Orthodox Judaism has a sacred version of the gender binary. They say, not only do we just assume everybody is either male or female and that's it, but we link that to God's creation. We think it's that way because God made it that way. And therefore, when we see this difference between men and women, we're actually seeing the sign of God's ordering of the universe. We're seeing that we live in a world that is intended by God, and we're seeing how our humanity reflects our relationship with that order and with our creator. So messing with that is not a small thing. On top of that, my students also lived in secular worlds. They, they went saw YouTube videos. And so they had a secular version of binary gender and a sacred version of binary gender. I didn't have a role a place in either one of them. And there was a question about whether what it meant for somebody like me to be part of an institution that represented that kind of a world. Was it possible? Would something blow up? And the truth is, it was possible. Was it comfortable? Not always. Were we able to do some good learning and growing together? Yes. Did some students avoid me? Absolutely. Um, were we frozen in this sort of don't ask, don't tell position? Unfortunately, yes. In a different institution, I think we could have gotten much further together and really learned more together. But I learned personally that I don't need other people to see me the way I see myself in order to be who I am. And that was a basic survival skill. And so a lot of the anti-trans legislation, it's all about trying to get people to feel that gender is a zero-sum game. There's, you know, either a form of gender that embraces somebody like me as a woman, or a form of gender that doesn't, that's it. Nothing else is possible, and it's winner take all. And that is, um, that's just not true. It's never been that way. It never will be that way. I, I had a question, but as you were talking, you sort of answered it, and it was going to be something to the effect of, what is it about this topic that gets some people who aren't affected in any way, shape, or form for all intents and purposes so fired up, you know, the Matt Walshes of the world, that blowhard um, who goes on talk shows to, to really, he's really fired up about it. But then you answered, it's like their view of, of God comes into play here. And if you challenge this binary uh, assumption, 
then you've challenged the very way God in which God creates the world. And so you, you must have tapped into my mind because I was going to ask that question, but you, you answered it in such a, in such a uh, powerful way. I would just like to, before um, I let Katie get a word in edgewise, it's been a long time now, Katie. Um, I, I just wanted to add an addendum. So I am a religious person. So I have no desire to say to religious people, you're wrong. Although, um, if you read the Hebrew Bible, it's more complicated than the, the idea. Nonetheless, there's uh, well-established traditions, Jewish and Christian traditions, that read this as link, that read uh, that passage in Genesis 1 as linking the image of God to binary gender. So that's part of the way people look at the world, and I'm not going to tell anybody they have to change it. What I want to do, though, part of my work is to offer an alternative way of thinking about it that is non-heretical. And I know, sorry about that, I keep being non-heretical. But thank you. That's to say, I also believe that human beings are made in the image of God. But from the time I was a kid, I didn't know about Zen koans, but it felt to me like this was sort of the sound of one hand clapping, the biblical version, because the Bible over and over again, God has no image, you can't represent God. So what does it mean to be created in the image of a God where the one thing you can know for sure about God is that God doesn't have an image? And because I take that seriously, I believe that I am and that we all are created in the image of God, I've had to make sense of it. And the sense I've made is that the part of me that reflects the God who created me, those are the parts of me that don't fit into human categories. Because that is the one thing we know for sure about God, is that God doesn't fit into human categories. They don't work. God can be in human drag temporarily. I think Jesus is an example of that. But before Jesus, the, the three men that Abraham sees visiting after the circumcision, right? It's not that God can't do this temporarily for the sake of relating to human beings, absolutely. But if you confuse God with those temporary presentations, then you end up engaging in idolatry. So if I want to find the image of God in me, I don't look for gender. I look for the parts of me that don't fit human categories. And I say, yeah, there are always parts of me that don't fit human categories. Why? Because I am created in the image of a boundless, mysterious, infinitely expansive creator. Um, God in drag is going to be the quote of the year. Indeed. So that's that's going to be the memes that we're going to pass around. Um, so Joy, there's been, you, you've used the word orthodox. And I'm wondering if you could kind of define that and maybe some of the Jewish spectrum uh, for our listeners. Um, because Orthodox might mean something a little different in Judaism than, than in Christianity, even though it means several things in Christianity. As well. So kind of give it, give us a, um, you know, later speech of like, what is Judaism? <laughs> <laughs> what is Judaism in a minute or less? <laughs> What's been happening for the past couple thousand years right? <laughs> in Judaism? Um, so let's go back a couple of thousand years to the end of the biblical era which kind of, for Jews, really ends with during the Roman occupation. The canonized books of the Torah, mostly 
There are like Second Isaiah. There are some that are written under the Roman occupation, but for the most part, that's where the canonical Torah ends. Um, Judaism under the Roman occupation was organized uh, around temple worship centralized in Jerusalem. The Romans finally got tired of Jews refusing to knuckle under to uh, Roman domination, which uh, wasn't that bad. Uh, you know, it's probably better than what Putin's trying to do to Ukraine. But nonetheless, Jews uh, refused to have it. And so they decided to just gut the whole country by destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, destroying the, the priesthood, the way the whole thing worked, and dispersing Jews all over the place. So Judaism then had to reorganize as a decentralized religion that didn't have a sacrificial basis, even though the sacred texts all talked about these sacrifices. So that started this long and really ongoing process of reinvention and evolution. You know, Jews have not, because we've been a small, persecuted, and dispersed minority, we haven't had the luxury of setting very much in stone because after a generation or two, conditions change and the form of Judaism you've come up with to survive in, say, the um, Jews in India, right? Social conditions in India change and suddenly that doesn't work anymore. So it became a very portable an adaptable religion. Um, that's why the, the, um, the Dalai Lama invited a bunch of Jews to help him figure out how Tibetan uh, Buddhism could survive as an exile religion instead of one that's tied to a land. He said, you know, brilliant as he is, he said, well, Jews figured this out a while ago. So after Napoleon and the Enlightenment. Before Napoleon, there in many countries, there the word ghetto was invented for Jews. Jews would be locked in many countries. Jews would be locked into the Jewish area at night. There was a very uh, strong and uh, nasty um, Jewish-Christian binary in European countries, much more relaxed version of that in most um, Middle Eastern and North African countries where Islam was. There in some places, things were quite cozy. But all of these places developed different versions of Judaism. But they were all halachic. They were all based on the idea that being Jewish meant you express your relation to God. What I think Christians, and I love this phrase, would call you bear witness to God by observing the commandments, the way of life, the sacred way of life that goes along with being a Jew. Um, after Napoleon unlocked the ghettos, Jews started to have a lot more, in many countries, a lot more opportunities to assimilate. And so there started to be many different ways of being Jewish and um, forms of Judaism that were designed to work with a modern European and then modern American outlook. So when I say Orthodox, I'm talking about Orthodox Jews see themselves as being the real traditional Jews who go all the way back, but this is not true. Orthodoxy begins as a reaction against the secularization of Judaism. It begins, it, it's a reaction against saying, like, like uh, the Reformed Jewish movement said, 
you know, we got to get rid of all this archaic stuff that's keeping us from participating in German life. And so German synagogues, reform synagogues started looking like churches and they had organs and, right? And so traditional Jews said, you know, no, this is going the wrong way. And so they formed orthodoxy as a reaction. Um, and orthodox Judaism basically is defined by, again, using following laws and rules that have developed over the millennia as a way of bearing witness but also as a way of creating sacred communities. And sacred, in, in biblical Hebrew, the word is kadosh, which means separate. So Jewish communal laws are designed to separate Jewish communities. They're designed to maintain that kind of boundary. So Orthodox Judaism generally means Jews who continue to define themselves that way. But because Judaism is decentralized, when I taught at an Orthodox school, I found that there are zillions of different kinds of Orthodox Judaism, too. And they're all constantly changing. However, when somebody like me comes in, they pretend that they've never changed. When they're just among themselves, they're having fights about the roles of women and, you know, contraception and all the kinds of stuff that people have to deal with And as time goes on. But whenever they uh, are in a confrontation with the secular world or more modernizing forms of Judaism, then they say, oh, you know, we're the ones who've kept the tradition unchanging. We've got the true unadulterated version. And they pretend that they're all about stasis instead of about growth and change. But as we know, human beings can emphasize being conservative or they can emphasize change. But Secular society is never all about change, and conservative communities are never all about staying the same. Human beings are always doing both. That that's really helpful, Joy. And I'm my eyes were illuminated at some point in my New Testament uh, studies journey. I think when a Jewish colleague, an Orthodox Jewish colleague, told me, um, "Yeah, Christians really read the stories of like Jesus' debate with the Pharisees very wrong." She was like, those kind of debates are part of Jewish life. She was like, we should not read those necessarily as contests, but as an intra-Jewish conversation. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And I, I couldn't believe I had never seen it because Christianity so typically hits Jesus against the Pharisees instead of them having like a healthy debate. It's true. And I think it's probably also true that, as we know, um, when people are dealing with conditions of oppression, it's frequent that oppressed communities, the debates that they have within them, they're often extremely charged and vociferous. There's a lot of stifled rage and frustration and a sense that we have to figure out the right way to do things or we're not going to survive. And so I suspect that that was also playing a factor in those, con uh, those conversations. It was a time when there was a lot of innovation in forms of Judaism. Um, and, uh, but many of those innovations were seeing themselves as the one that we need right now, like the Dead Sea Scrolls community. No, we have to leave this stuff behind and go off and do this messianic thing. And so my hunch is that some of the, the feeling of contestation that might have reflected the charged environment that they were in and the feeling that 
you know, history was, in, as Jews had understood it, history was supposed to reveal God's presence, and specifically the history of the, uh, the Jewish people. And that paradigm was just melting down under the endless Roman oppression. It just didn't make any sense, unless you say, well, it must be that the end of times is coming, the apocalypse is coming. So you have a lot of messianic sects, but messianic sects, because the end is nigh, they do tend to be um, my way or the highway kind of sects, right? You want to be on, you want to be doing it right when when the trumpets blow. So, Joy, you said something earlier about um, being created in the image and likeness of God, but ha- having a God that we can't see. And, and, and I think that there's, there's a hidden indicator there that, that if we can get past the whole, uh, image and likeness of God in, in a physical form, that we can dispense with the, with the, um, uh, gender silos that are, that are social constructs, right? And not necessarily spiritual constructs that, and, and I think that this is part part of the reason why uh, people are really resistant to uh, the decolonizing of of religion because if you if you get to the point where you say okay that that there is gender fluidity in the quote unquote Godhead, then there's gender fluidity in in humanity, and and that all of this now makes sense, and 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 so I think that there's a resistance to that because. They, the, the powers that be want to keep their colonial rule over spirituality. I am totally, I'm totally with you right up until the end. And when I was a union steward, I would always tell, uh, employees that had grievances, they always felt that it was the powers that be. And I worked for a very inept organization. And so I would always say, well, you know, sometimes it's evil, but usually it's stupidity. And now I would say, sometimes it's evil, but often it's anxiety that institutions and communities and individuals are usually at our worst when we're feeling afraid and threatened. And now, of course, we have um, whole industries that just exist to generate anxiety and make people feel that they're existentially threatened and that... um, that the the way of life that's based on one or another form of binary gender is is under threat. So, are there masters of evil? I would say people are making money off this. People are making reputations off this. Absolutely. But I also think that there are a lot of folks across the political spectrum, including extremely uh, proudly progressive uh, and liberal people who are also wondering, like, what happens to all of the good stuff that they get out of binary gender if we have trans inclusion? Do we get to, for example, say mother and father? Because losing those terms would be a huge loss, right? Is there a way that we can do this that doesn't mean that people have to lose the good stuff that they're getting from binary gender. That doesn't seem to be a question that we're asking very much. We're asking, and and that's why I think it's so easy to get people 
anxious about this because we're not working together to envision a world in which we say, yeah, humanity's got all these different kinds of people. They all do gender and identity in different kinds of ways. But my way of doing gender involves certain things that are really important to me. Like, I'll just say my relationship with my mother, I don't want to lose the word mother. Does it matter to me that my mother, that I identify my mother as physically female? Absolutely. Am I open to other ways, you know, identifying other people as mothers also? Yeah, probably. But in terms of my most intimate mother relationship, the traditional form of binary gender, that's what gives that word so much meaning in terms of my history as a poet. You know, I don't, I don't use the word parent and sibling and all of these degender terms in my poetry because they don't, they're, they don't have the same kind of blood. They don't have the roots. They don't have the history. So I don't want to lose any of that stuff. What I want to do is see what we can. I'd, I'd like to help people recognize how each of our humanity can expand. So, yeah. <laughs> that, well, yes, that's the thing. I think that this, because gender, so human beings can't be anything that God isn't, right? I don't think there's a religious person who would disagree with that, right? We can't be more than God can be, right? So what that means is that just as I was saying, like God can be, can be in human drag, we are images of God in gendered drag, right? These are ways of expressing our humanity and creating relationships with one another. And they're always partial. They're always compromises. No gender system works perfectly for anybody. Many of them work better than the traditional one works for me. But they don't actually work perfectly for anybody. That's why a lot of the freakouts about trans stuff were previewed by the freakouts about feminism. That was the last time we started thinking about collectively about, well, how much can gender change? Can we really tolerate doing this together? And it turns out that even in some pretty conservative communities, you can get women wearing pants and, and the world doesn't end. Like there are, there's actually a range of change that is possible that we can do communally without losing the good stuff. I don't want to take the good stuff away from anybody. What I want to see is what they can get by recognizing the humanity of people like me. I really love that nuanced approach because, I mean, it's not your job to make people change their mind about, you know, uh, what, what's the term for, I mean, getting, you know, it's, it's like the job of someone who's in a press group to get others to change their mind. However, I love that you pointed out that even within conservative circles, the ideas of feminism and masculinity have changed just by women wearing pants. Now, some people might think that's sort of silly, but it does show an incremental change. The, the, and, and getting people to recognize that I think is important because even the most staunchly conservative, if they went back 100 years, if they showed their ankles, they would be in a lot of trouble. So there has been progress, even with the most staunchly conservative, we only do traditional stuff, um, values, there has been some progressiveness within those circles. That's exactly right. And I would say if we think of communities as, as individuals that 
we want, when you want to, when you're working with somebody who's struggling with change and anxiety about change, one of the things you want to do is help them recognize their resilience. You want them to see, you know what, this isn't brand new. You've done this before. You have the tools you need. And it doesn't have to happen all at once. You can handle this. You don't have to be overwhelmed. You remind people. Because anxiety makes us feel small and brittle. So when you direct people to their strengths, like, yeah, actually, I'm not calling you a hypocrite. You're a conservative community. The Orthodox world is changing all the time. I'm not saying that means they're being hypocritical. I'm saying that is one of the strengths of human communities and religious traditions, is that we change. We are adaptable. Conservative communities privilege continuity over change. I think that that's beautiful. I don't want to live in a world where there's no continuity. Secular communities tend to overprivilege change over con- continuity. That's foolish if they forget the ways in which the deep continuities that are going on. So I would say, yeah, let's step back and look at the strengths in conservative communities and all the ways that they've adapted and been resilient and have found ways to keep what's beautiful and true and magnifying of the humanity of their members, even through many changes. And then drawing on those strengths, think about the stuff that seems hard, but come at it from a place of confidence and strength and not from a place of terror and smallness. That's really beautiful. I really love that, Joy. I, I, again, going back, there's something you had said earlier, um, and it seems kind of coming back around to this again, like, you know, you pointed out the fact that in many ways it seems like we're not making very much progress in this area. And you, you know, kind of compared it to what's going on with like the civil rights movement and how, yay, we passed a bunch of laws uh, on the books, which is good. I mean, you can say that's progress, right? At least it's, it's illegal to do some of these things. And yet, the behaviors didn't change, right? So it seems like there is, uh, and that's a great point, you know, because um, if you want true change, right, you've got to do, you have to change not just the law, right? It's not just, you have to also change the heart. You have to change the mind. And that that's a conversation. And that's a lot more work. And a lot of times we think that, well, as long as, you know, if we just rally together and elect this person or pass this, you know, bill or whatever, there you go. Problem solved. But it isn't. It hasn't even, you hadn't even begun to solve the problem, right? And it's not that you don't want to do both. We kind of have to do both in, in some ways. But I mean, would you agree that you feel like the, of the two, not that we have to choose, but of the two, what, what's more important is changing the heart? Because it, technically, I guess if you change the heart, then, then the rest will follow, right? I, I do think if you had to choose, that's what I would choose. But I would say actually also, the focusing on the individual, I don't know that the individual is the unit here. I think it is more communities and institutions. And maybe this is, I'm over-reliant on the Jewish conversational model. But I think we need to do with gender what the rabbis did with Judaism. You know, we need to keep talking, but also we need to talk in a way which, you know, trans activists were under siege it's very hard to, to feel that strength and resilience and confidence. But I think these conversations need to be open to all the voices, including the anti-trans voices. They are also stakeholders. And it's easier to do that when you realize that there are multiple models of gender. 
and that we don't have to pick one. And so somebody who is anti-trans could, in the right conversational environment, say, the model of gender that works for me is one that ties female gender to female biology. That's what this means to me. And I can say, yeah, I totally get that. I grew up with that. Most of the people I know and love, that's their model of gender too. I know. So I'm not making you give that up. Now let's talk about what what happens when you and I are living in the same community or we're sharing the same institution. You know, we're both good people. We don't want to hurt one another. It, and I think that if those conversations, if that's the premise, you see that the actual trade-offs are relatively small. They're not nothing. But, you know, fighting, you know, in a world like this, the idea that we've spent any time thinking about trans girls on sports teams, that shows you how few actual conflict issues there are to choose from, right? Kids sports is something that is the standard bearer conflict for because that's where you find a zero-sum conflict. That's the way it looks. Really, if that's what it comes down to, I think we can figure that out. That's a, that's a great point. Um, so a little birdie has told me, or I think you might have mentioned it, or maybe it was Katie beforehand and you mentioned it. You're a poet. I would love to start talking maybe about some of your poetry and how you got into poetry. And um, I, 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 lo- I personally love poetry, though I haven't written much. So I would be uh, curious, first off, to ask um, how, you, how you got into it and, and how you use your poetry in your activist work. Oh, thank you. I don't know how I got into poetry. <laughs> that is one of the mysteries of my life. Um, as soon as I started, as soon as I learned to write, I started writing things that I not only considered poems, but I considered great poems. Basically, I considered anything that I wrote to be great poetry. And that was because my parents, my family was non-literary. I wasn't exposed to any actual poetry. <laughs> so I seemed to be the poetry world all by myself. And it was, um, it was a great thing for me. It helped me stay alive as a trans kid living in hiding. It was a way I was different, but that I was open about. But also when I was writing, I felt I was doing something. It was like the only thing I could do where my gender, my body didn't seem to matter. It felt like I was just this space that language, which was this thing that was so much larger than I was, it was passing through and what came out were worlds that I had a place in, unlike the actual world where I had no place as a trans person, because they were worlds that had come into being through me. So I just started writing poetry when I was six, and it always remained central to my sense of of who I was. Um, I have to be honest with you that at no point in my life has the larger world shared my opinion of the monumental historical nature of the poetry that I write. Um, there, are, there are definitely folks who like it, but um, that sort of um, childhood narcissism, um, which has gotten me through a lot of rejections, I will tell you that. Um, I think it's a good thing for uh, an artist to have that kind of self-delight, um, but uh, hasn't been universally shared but the yet 
that's right. I'm told that, you know, after I die, it's a whole new ball game. So I, but I, um, in the middle, I, part of the, my life as a poet has been trying to create language for trans experience. I wrote really three books where that was a central part of those books. And I see them as a three-part series. But there's another triptych of books that are really religious poetry, They're, which for me, um, my relation to God has always been bound up with my trans experience. They've never been separate. And so those religious-oriented books also use the trans experience of being kind of outside of human categories as, um, as a way of thinking about God and the human-divine relationship. So the first one uh, is called The Book of Anna. It was republished last year, and it won the National Jewish Book Award a few weeks ago. Um, it's in the voice of a very pissed off Holocaust survivor who spent her adolescence in concentration camps. And her problem with God is not that God must not be there. If there, you know, if there's the Holocaust, there must not be a God. That's the sort of theodicy that I grew up in as an American Jew. No, she knows God is there. That's what pisses her off. God is there and being, you know, useless at best and complicit at worst. Um, so she does a lot of uh, work on trying to tell, figure out her story and tell her story and prose uh, diary entries and narrative poems where God is a, is a character. Um, the second book in the series is uh, called Psalms, and it is a book of psalms. The psalms I always uh, admired were the um, Davidic psalms, um, the ones where um, it's really personal. It's very much an individual human being. There are a lot of psalms that are communal or they're sort of depersonalized where you're just, um, I think of them as hallelujah psalms, where you're just psalms that are celebrating the wonder of creation or the wonder of God, and there doesn't seem to be a person there. But when David is talking with God, he is a messy human being. And, you know, he'll say the most exalted things, and they'll say, by the way, God, if you could smite this fucker, that would be really good, too. Because, exactly. So I, I liked that as a model. So I wrote a book of those guys, I was at a horribly difficult part of my life and transition. I was really isolated, and I, um, I knew God was there, but I wanted God to be involved in what I was involved in. And I thought, I am just going to have my say. I'm going to let God have it. And you know how sneaky God is. So the more I did, I soliloquized, but the closer I found myself being, feeling in relation to God. So by the, the end of the book, it's not that I don't have the complicated feelings, but there's no sense of, you know, it's more like, well, how am I going to respond to your presence rather than how can I get you to be more present? And the, the last book in the series is coming out in a few weeks. It's called Shekhinah Speaks. And Shekhinah, I know that um, 
that's a term in some Christian traditions also. Shekhinah in the Jewish tradition is the term for the female imminent aspect of God. I have a feeling it was the uh, Jewish answer to Jesus, honestly, because Jesus is a way of understanding God as imminent and not just transcendent. Also, a response to intense oppression. How can we relate to a God who doesn't know what it's like to be where we are? So, um, but Jesus foreclosed the possibility of traditional Judaism going the incarnation route. So instead, they imagine this female aspect of God who is with each individual um, and suffers what we suffer and rejoices when we rejoice. But because the Shekhinah is a sort of a creature of what happens when the gender binary gets together with the theological imagination, the Shekhinah is the subordinate opposite of the masculine aspect of God. So the masculine aspect of God talks all the time, so the Shekhinah in tradition doesn't get to say anything. I wanted to know what Shekhinah would say. And so these poems were, are an attempt to turn my poetry over to her. And, and by golly, she turns out to have a lot to say. And, and where can our listeners find all of uh, your work? And you, you had mentioned that this last part, the last in the series comes out shortly? It'll be coming out shortly from, you can find it and, um, and the Book of Anna at Small Press Distribution. Um, Psalms, you can get from Amazon, but you can also get it from a small press called Whip and Stock. If you, oh, yeah. yeah, I've published with Whip and Stock, so we must be colleagues. There you go. <laughs> we are. Yeah, they're they're lovely. Yes, um, they are. Don't don't tell my current publisher that. But yes, they are. <laughs> we'll, we'll let it that part out. Well, we will we will make sure to to link in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, this has been a wonderful. Yeah. Yep. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, you get thank that? You. Hey, enjoy. It. <laughs> oh, right on time. Where's my um? Womp, 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 womp. There it is. I feel very <laughs> lucky to get to be in conversation with you all. I just yes. want to say thank you so much. Thank you, Joy. It has been a blast. It feels like it's been about five minutes that we've been talking. Yeah, great stuff. It's been so good. And what a wonderful way to wrap up yes, this series. Thank so thank you so much. Another wonderful, wonderful episode. I, I feel like we've been saying that after every episode. We're just patting ourselves on the back. But really, it's not even about us. It's about our wonderful guests. So shout out to Derek. Shout out to Katie for getting these uh, these one, all the wonderful guests that we've had um, for hooking us up and, and making the show more than just the four of us. Uh, not that we're great, not great because we are, <laughs> but you know, let's just be honest. Our guests, our guest hosts were, were absolutely yeah. fantastic throughout this entire series so far. But before we sign off today, I just want to remind everyone listening that we have a website. You've heard it before. You'll hear it again. HereticHappyHour.com. You can pick up books from our past guests. You can pick up t-shirts and pillows and hats. And you can, of course, go through all the episodes that we've recorded. You can even keyword search if you want to look for something, you want to find which episode it is, put it in the keyword, punch it in there, take an hour, give it a listen. HereticHappyHour.com. Improve your life, guaranteed. Results are guaranteed. 
I hope everyone will run out and buy a copy of Joy's book, The Soul of the Stranger. It will absolutely change your life. It's amazing. And then come over and post about all the amazing things that you've read from our amazing bookstore and uh, post them in our Facebook group, which is Heresy After Hours. It's a free Facebook group. Did I mention free? All you have to do is click the little apply button and then we will approve you. And then you can talk to us about all the great things you're reading, all of your questions. All four of us are in there. We interact with people in the group all the time. So we'd love to have you in Heresy After Hours Facebook group. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, I want to talk just a little bit uh, to our uh, supporters on Patreon. So uh, listen, just want you to know, I really appreciate you. I think you're beautiful. I think you're really beautiful. And uh, I think you're really sexy. So thank you for supporting us. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you something. The cool, sultry tones. Oh, yeah. And mm. I'm Patreon. Yes, Patreon.com. You go to Patreon.com slash Heritage Happy Hour and you become a supporter. That kiss was for you. And hey, baby, this is more where that came from. Uh, you can unlock so much extra stuff, amazing stuff. I'm talking about on Patreon. Uh, you can unlock over there. And if you don't support us yet, come on. What are you waiting for? so much cool stuff listen there are people in the heretic happy hour private facebook group that you need to you need to connect with you need to meet them and get to know them because they're awesome too and they want to talk to you to know you so you know what you're you're withholding this beautiful treasure of yourself from the rest of us don't what are you doing stop it stop doing that help us support us get connected feel the love baby because that's what it's all about and listen if you support the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and you give us a five-star rating on iTunes, you, my friend, will be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm dead sexy. Get in my belly. <laughs>